This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Invisibilia is back for a new season with new stories about small personal battles. I'm a different person now. You're fake. And huge cultural issues. This is probably going to get somebody killed. So tune in for Invisibilia Season 4. Look at all that meat. What is that? Pork. That's a lot of pork. <laughs> hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Pork shoulders. What's it seasoned with? Just salt and pepper. Right now, you're listening to a food tour. Uh, uh, well, a kitchen tour, actually. We got some eggs. David Chang is showing yeah. me the kitchen at his new L.A. restaurant. It's called Major Domo. I don't even know what's cooking there right now. It is about noon at the restaurant. Uh, and so this is a time of day where the kitchen staff is getting all the stuff ready for dinner. And there's just so much food that they're prepping. And all of it is very typical David Chang. These competing Asian influences, these really big, intense, bold flavors. It's stuff like black cod with noodles and chili. This station here is uh, essentially pasta station. Noodle. Okay. Stuff like Santa Barbara rock crab. Curing ginger for the rock crab dish. Which is cured in ginger and spices. We cure it. In the spicy sauce. And there's this emphasis on freshness in the entire restaurant, on, on, on making homemade whatever you can home make. This is the busiest station. The griddle. We're cooking the bings, the bread griddle to order. So at one point, David walks me to the walk-in veggie freezer at the restaurant. What you can see is packed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Redundant to say how good California produce is, but... It's good. It's unbelievable. This is David's first restaurant in L.A. It opened in January of this year. But he is most well-known for his Momofuku restaurants. Those are in New York and Sydney and Toronto and Vegas and Washington, D.C. It's a lot. What are the potatoes? Are those potatoes? That's, that's family meal. What do you mean? The most important meal of the day for me uh-huh. is when you, if you're feeding your staff. Before the restaurant opens. Yeah. What's the going to be? That looks like we're making breakfast. <laughs> that's griddled potatoes. But, it like, if you good. can, if you, you can tell so much about a cook's prospects, how they take care of family meal. So you feed your staff every if day. someone cares about feeding a person that's not paying, like, like loving, yeah. they're going to care a lot for a paying customer. If you've never been a paying customer in one of David Chang's restaurants, you can see into his mind and see his food philosophy on his new show. It is from Netflix. It's called Ugly Delicious. David hosts a show, and every episode he travels the world exploring different foods and their histories and where they're going next. And he tells the often messy and complicated stories that these foods tell about race and culture and lots of other stuff. He also has the occasional celebrity who comes in to eat and chat with him. It's a really interesting role for David Chang because he is an interesting pick for a host. He is often very combative. He is full of big and bold opinions. And he kind of has this reputation as one of the bad boys of food. And on top of that, he also seems most at home actually in the kitchen, not in a dining room or a TV screen. How often do you want to be back here? I'd much rather be back there than out here talking to people. When do you get back to just being back in the kitchen like you want? Um, After I talk to you. Yeah. (laughs) So David and I sat down in the dining room of his new restaurant in L.A., Major Domo, to talk about 
how he and this new restaurant are embracing L.A. and his food. Also talked about how he was ashamed to be Korean when he was growing up. And we go through all the insecurities that someone even as successful as him is still dealing with all these years later. All right. Enjoy. If you had to describe this restaurant in like 20 seconds to someone who had never heard of it before. Um, well, we didn't want this to have a, really any DNA of what we've done in the past. So this is our, we, we tried to envision that this is our only restaurant. Okay. So it's going to obviously be Californian because we're in L.A. And I think for me, being an outsider to Los Angeles, that really means embracing all of L.A. And L.A., it's redundant to say, is diverse, right? Yeah. Uh, whether it, that diversity is integrated is another story. Yes. But I do see, I think you see that in the plate. To the menu, talk me through one dish that really describes or gets at the vibe of this space. Oh, where to start? Where to start? Um, I mean, the Bing's are something. What is that? Bing is Chinese name for uh, bread. Uh-huh. Northern China actually has a lot of bread. Huh. More than rice because there's wheat fields. Mm-hmm. The reason the Bing happened for is twofold. One is I wanted to make a play on a Korean dessert called hotdog, which is like a stuffed pancake. Mm-hmm. It can be savory with noodles, but the most common one is stuffed with cinnamon and sugar mm-hmm. and then pan fried. It's like a pan fried donut. Um, and then looking at that, I'm like, mm, we stuff ours with dates and stuff like that, but that's not, I was like, what's the history behind that? Because there's no other leavened dough in Korean cuisine. Mm-hmm. It all comes from, Chinese immigrants from China in, in, that moved to Korea. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. And at our restaurant at the time, I didn't even know there was a Taiwanese association for many momofu because one th- dish, probably the dish that made us famous and well-known were the steamed buns. Oh, yeah. That, that dish came from a Cantonese restaurant I'd come to go to in New York on uh, Elizabeth Street called Oriental Garden, and they would put the Peking duck in these fluffy buns. Yeah. Not to go on this road, it was just like, oh, instead of steaming it, we can pan fry it, mm. griddle it. So that was the idea. It's like, we can't, I don't want to do something just like, it has to have some meaning for us, or at least personal narrative. Mm-hmm. So there was like multiple points where it's like, okay, we can put bread on that's not steamed. Yeah. And that's basically what Bing is. And Bing is, bread in Korean is called bang, uh-huh. right? So there's a lot of similarities with, yeah. with words there. And then it was like, okay, like how do we integrate this into the food without doing the steam buns that we've done at the, our restaurants. Okay. So the, the DNA is the steam buns, uh-huh. but how do we do it where it's like L.A.? Yeah. That, that's what we were hoping, fingers uh-huh. crossed, that would come yeah. across. Uh-huh. That would be fun. You could tear off the bread. You could do however you want. Because mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of how people want to eat in L.A., whether it's a taco or Mexican food or meze, um, the list goes on, is like, hey, we're all eating the same thing but I'm going to make it the way I want to make it. A little twist, yeah. yeah. So this space right now, Major Dumbo, we're in, we're in the private dining room and like the restaurant, the, like the physical space, describe it. It is... So this is an old warehouse that used to supply Chinese supplies, food and stuff like that. And um, we've had the opportunity to, to come to Los Angeles for, for many years now, and it just never seemed right. Um, when we signed this lease, it was almost like three years ago. It was in the period where I was like, I don't know about anything anymore. I was like, am I done? And mm. it was just a lot of doubt and just mm-hmm. growing up. And when I saw this place, 
it was so raw and scary to me. This warehouse? This looks somewhat looks nice, nice now, now. But like, man. What three, did it look like when you first saw it? I, th I remember thinking, this is beyond Thunderdome Mad Max. <laughs> Why? What did it look like? Exposed beams. It just like, it looked like a bombed out World War II bomb shelter, you know, to So me. then why in the world would you say this is the space? I was like, well, you can only go up from here. <laughs> okay. You know? Okay. Uh, in, a weird, in a weird way, um, I felt like uh, if we opened up here, we could try to be part of a community that I knew was trying to rebuild. Mm. And, and I, I was very, very aware and still am about like, gentrifying or being part of a problem. In but, terms of like gentrifying, like are you hiring local? Are you doing certain things to not we, fit into that? We are hiring mostly local staff, people from LA. Uh, we are trying, we just did Chinese New Year with a lot of the, the Chinatown businesses. Mm -hmm. um, understanding that there's a lot of second generation youths that are getting in the food business that reside in Chinatown. Yeah. And if anything, I, I would love to use our ability to the attention that we have to shed a spotlight <clears throat> on them. Like Do you work with them? We've done a few things with them. Yeah. Um, but like we're still figuring out how to like, integrate it more. So it's a okay. it's a team. It's a yeah. neighborhood, and I, I want us to be good neighbors first and foremost. That's our goal, right? So so. But going back to this location, I thought that it was going to force us out of our comfort zone. Yeah, we were going to have to do something new if people were going to come out of the way to come down here. Not new, but we were going to have to be more ambitious. I I don't know. Sometimes I think historically the best stuff that we do comes when it's like so like hard for us. Yeah. Let's talk about the show, Ugly Delicious, on Netflix. Uh, first question, that sushi tuna pizza, that yeah. can't have been good. It was not good. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. I mean, it was... Here's, I knew it. Here's what I'm trying to, like... But he, the chef, loved it. Describe for our listeners who haven't seen the show yet. Like, it's the, <laughs> it's the first episode all about pizza. The pizza... Uh, first of all, <laughs> I think it's really hard for me to describe Ugly Delicious. Like, if you still ask me... What is Momofuku food? I still don't know how to describe it in like two sentences. Okay. I, I just don't. Okay. Um, <laughs> Ugly Delicious to me is sort of the similar thing. Like, yes, it's the name and blah, blah, blah. It's sort yeah. of easy. But for me, the pizza thing was, it wasn't about just finding the best pizza. I think it was finding the stories. Behind to, the pizza. Yeah. And, but those have already been told. So to break down the tuna break pizza. Break down the scene. The owner of Savoy, which is one of my favorite pizzerias in the world, and we went to his newest location, and I thought we were going to have, like, the Pomodoro pizza or the margarita. Mm -hmm. But he wound up showing us this crazy Maguro, Maguro's uh, tuna, bluefin tuna, because he, in his former life, was a bluefin tuna trader okay. at the Tsukiji Market. So he has all this... Where is that market? It's in, Jap in Japan, Tokyo. Okay. It's, like, the very famous, yeah. definitely the best in yeah. the world. Anyway, he brings this out, and I'm like... Oh, that's cool. We're going to eat some tuna on the side of pizza. What I didn't think was going to happen was he was going to merge the two things together, put mayonnaise and corn and wasabi. I just got to walk this back. So he has the pizza crust. Yeah. He puts mayo all no, over no, no, the no, crust. No, no, no. Not even the pizza crust. He rolls out a raw pizza dough, <laughs> and then he starts chopping up, like, honestly, it was probably like $1,000 worth of bluefin tuna. And I was like, watching it, and I was like, what is happening? Yeah, I was like, what is happening? Like... <laughs> I would rather just eat that, like, right? is, is, But is. then, so it's like the mayo on there, the corn on there. He puts a hunk of this big old raw tuna on there, and then he puts it in the oven. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, I was just, and then he pulls it out. The top of the tuna is kind of cooked. The middle is still raw. It's a hunk I, of tuna on I didn't, there. I didn't understand it, but, like, corn on pizza, something you see, 
I still don't understand what happened there. <laughs> but I do know this. He stood by it. And, like, he obviously has – he knows food and he knows gastronomy. So what I'm trying to learn about myself is not to be like, oh, this sucks. Did That's it taste all. good in your mouth? I would rather have eaten it else otherwise. <laughs> you are so diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to get into the phrase ugly delicious yeah. because I feel like it kind of speaks to your whole worldview about food. Or am I reaching a little bit? Um, I don't even think it's a finished idea, right? To the extent that you can describe what that means, ugly delicious, tell our listeners. I think at the first thing, <laughs> ugly delicious at its core was some joke that I made about how because everyone, not everyone, people are close to me say, oh, you would take the worst pictures of food. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, many people would say, like, your photo skills suck. And I was like, I don't think it's, maybe they're not great, but maybe they're, like, laughing at the kind of food that I'm taking photos of. And it dawned on me that was sort of the same, similar tones of how I grew up eating food, where I didn't want to eat Korean food in front of basically a suburban white audience. Why not? Because it was gnarly to them. And was it ugly to them? It was gross. What, which dishes were the grossest to them? I remember a bowl of curry. I remember a Korean curry. I remember what the hell is wrong with a bowl of curry? That's good. But yeah, but this is, talk about the mid 80s okay. in Virginia. Where in Virginia? Outside DC, but when I grew up there, it was still farmland. Oh, wow. And I'm gonna say this, there's still those misperceptions of these foods to many people. They think it's ugly. Or they think it's gross or it's weird. And I remember being someone that was like, I don't think I'm ever going to fit in. And the food was part of that process, mm. but it was just a small part of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, I'm never going to fit in me because of my skin color. And I grew up for a long time being ashamed of being Korean because uh, I never fit in with Korean culture either. Mm. Because Koreans were like, you're a gyopo, you're a foreign born, you're not part of us. So I was just like, all right, I'll just try to figure out what the hell's happening. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And put that on hold. And when I started cooking, I wanted to cook anything that wasn't Korean. Huh. I mean, to me still, French or Japanese is one of the pinnacles, right? Okay. So it's natural that I gravitated to something that was the furthest thing from what my mom or grandmother cooked. Yeah. And I never wanted to be typecast as Korean. I still have issues. When, that's why really? I, I get internally sort of mad when someone's, oh, you're making Korean food. I'm like, no. Like, you're making food. Maybe I'm making Korean food, but like, don't, I don't, don't want anyone to, to ever tell me that like, you can't, you have to be a certain thing. Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. I felt like in my entire life growing up, that was a lot of that, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Being typecast as yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And that bothers me tremendously. Yeah. What so, made you accept being okay with the food you grew up with and being okay serving that? Like, wh- I, I've been really thinking about that because I've, I just reached a point, I think a lot of it was just getting older or me, maybe the time and place we're yeah, in, right? Yeah. And, uh, the world we live in today is a very different world than just two years ago, right? So yeah. I just was feeling like I'm going to try to go down this rabbit hole and see what comes out. So then is, is Ugly Delicious in a way saying <clears throat> these foods they made fun of, these foods they thought smell bad or look bad, you're saying it's good. Well, Eat I, it. Deal with I it. I think it's or, not only that. I think what I feel like is like kimchi when I grew up eating kimchi or other Korean foods mm-hmm. – are now cool, right? That's like really weird. Kim, like the, the seaweed snack mm-hmm. uh, that you now see many, many younger kids eating. Mm-hmm. I remember bringing that to school and everyone being like, that's gross. You're eating like weeds. And now that is like incredibly popular. You, you see it at like CVS. Yeah. That's 
essentially a 30 year, 30 years for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And when you hear something like that, you think that's a cultural truth that is, that is permanent, but it's not. And then you realize almost no cultural truths are true. Explain. Like, think about it. It's like, um, women can't vote. Blacks can't vote. You can't go to school because you're this. Mm. You're not an athlete because you can't do this. Or you translate to food, you're like, uh, Chinese food can't be a four-star restaurant, Uh. right? Or Korean food can never be as cool as Japanese food. Or Uh. Indian food and curry food is never as pristine as X, Y, and Z, right? And then it's always a contrast of something. This is not as good as this. Or you will never be this, in my opinion, right? So it's part of your work trying to push against that. I'm not trying to prove it wrong. It's just like, hey, like, why don't we question it? Mm. That's all. It's just like, I'll, I'll give you an example that I think the show tries to, that yeah. we do, and I yeah. know I've been doing, is like MSG. MSG, monosodium glutamate, is something that I feel like I've been an apologist and a champion for, not because I use it or love it. Do you use it in your food? I use it in my personal life. Gotcha. And I really am debating, do we use it in our kitchens? And MSG really encapsulates so much of, I think, of racism towards Asians, particularly really? Chinese food. Mm. And the derision to making that accepted. I think a lot of Asian Americans mm-hmm. have know what that feels like. Well, or I mean, heard that. yeah, I mean, like for me growing up, just as like a black kid in Texas, I remember hearing like, oh, that food is bad because it has MSG. And it was just bad. And if you understand at the core level what that means and what that's associated with, what other elements in food, not just food, part of culture are similar to that statement. There mm. are many of them. Mm-hmm. So many. Yeah. And then you're like, why the hell do we accept that? And then yeah. if you do your homework on that, you're going to be like, what does image that do? is fake yeah. news. Like, yeah, because it's good. It makes the food taste good. But it's good. based on a lie. What is a lie? My limited knowledge and understanding is that... Uh, in the late 60s, Robert Kwok wrote an email. He was a, not email in the 60s. Yeah. Sent a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine saying that he got headaches and nausea and felt terrible when he, whenever he ate Chinese food. And that was just to an op-ed. And it became the basis for Chinese restaurant syndrome. Acronyms Chinese restaurant syndrome? was actual Oh, my thing. God. So, like, unequivocally, if you add a lot of MSG to something, it's going to make it taste really good. What is the flavor it's giving? It's umami. It's uh, the fifth. You have salty, sweet, sour, bitter, and, and then umami. That's a proven thing. Yes. Uh, again, like, I'm not, I'm not supporting it. It's just the more you go down this hole and you realize, wait, like, there are all these sort of random events that happen, right? And, like, uh, Ian Mosby, who's in the show, wrote an amazing paper. You should look it up. Okay. Um, about Chinese restaurant syndrome. And he even said something like, one of the Partridge family members had uh, went to the hospital, maybe because of a some other thing that he was doing, uh, and they're like, "Oh, what happened?" He's like, "Oh, I ate Chinese food." So like these myths get perpetuated uh-huh. and fed, uh-huh. and if you go even before that, you learn that like, wow, there was a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment when they first came in as laborers for uh, the yeah. railroads and stuff, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. You eat dogs and cats. So a lot of the MSG stuff comes... Is rooted in this history. This crazy history that is like, up. Well, and like, this is the thing. It's like, your show gets at it, and I feel like it's not just food. Food contains so much. Food contains history. Food contains truth. Food contains these bigger ideas. And, but exactly. And we try our best to do it, and I think we've been... Um, 
we failed in many areas and it's been wildly like inconsistent. I, that's a criticism I get, whether it's inclusive to all kinds of food, whether it's including all races, um, gender, we're, we tried our best. And mm -hmm. I understand that is in many people that are critical of it, like not good enough. I don't disagree with you, but we're trying. Well, also know? this idea that like it's bad to be inconsistent. It's not about having a perfect track record. It's about getting to the place you want to get to. Right. But part of it is the failure and to learn. Yes. Like, what is a good You're never going you? to learn until you do it, right? Until you like figure it out. To truly like understand something, I think you actually have to experience it. It's something I tell my cooks mm -hmm. and people that are creating dishes. Oftentimes now, like if you have an idea for a dish or any, I think, endeavor, you edit the idea in your head or with your, your, your peer group. So you're like, okay. This I, might work, this won't work. But, but yeah, like, you, yeah. So like you, in your head, you'll immediately go to a process where you're at version 64, all right? Uh-huh, when you should just like make the first thing you think of. Right, but like it's not about getting to that point. It's literally going one, two, three, four, and iterate. screwing up, iterate. iterate, iterate. And like if you skip through that process, you're never gonna get there. All right, time for a quick break. In a minute, we'll talk about David's successes and his failures in the restaurant business. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Discover. The traditional first anniversary gift is paper. Most couples aren't gifting each other stationery, but Discover is following this anniversary tradition for its new card members. At the end of your first year, Discover will match all the cash back you earn dollar for dollar. No caps and no catch. That's a paper anniversary gift in the form of a cash back bonus. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Cashback match offer only for new card members. Limitations apply. What's unique about the human experience and what do we all have in common? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey through the big ideas, emotions, and discoveries that fill all of us with wonder. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, all right. So you, if I recall correctly, you were a religious studies major at I, Trinity I College. Was, I was. How did you go from that to food? <laughs> well, I grew up in a very religious household. What kind of religion? Uh, my parents were Presbyterian. My grandmother, uh, my dad's grandmother. So my dad's side was North Korean, mm -hmm. Korean at the time, but uh, before the war. And she should have been Buddhist, but I don't know how the hell that happened <laughs> because they became like Everyone Christian. should kind of be Buddhist. Yeah, right? <laughs> but like most people at that time were Buddhist. Like, so uh -huh. it was like by a happen chance she converted to Christianity. Okay. And I sort of grew up in that household. And my sister went to seminary school, and I, had, I still have a contentious relationship with her because of how that happened because she was like 10 years older than me. Okay. And like being forced to go to church. Did you I, like church? Uh... Yes and no. I mean, I have uncles that are ministers. I have cousins that I've never seen in 20, 30 years because they're missionaries. And wow. Who know. So many, the, the church was something that was like, in retrospect, forced upon me. Okay. And I always thought my older brother was the black sheep. It turned out that I'm actually maybe the black <laughs> sheep because in Sunday school, I would be the kid that'd be like, wait a second, like, why is everyone going to hell? That doesn't make any sense to me. Why, yeah. why would you have like, a finite time on this planet Mm -hmm. to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for eternity, right? That just seemed to me not like a fair did, shake. Yeah, did you hope to get answers to those questions? And no one ever, and I just college. was never, yeah, this, those questions I asked as a kid, uh -huh. um, 
so impressed upon me as like, wow, like this is something for whatever reason I learned and I think a lot about. And I went to Catholic school, so there was a lot. Just weirdly enough, the classes that I did really well in were, happened to be religious studies. Okay. So and you're in college. College happened to be many of those classes were like two o'clock, three o'clock. <laughs> 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 just so happened uh-huh. that like I got really good grades in in religion classes and, and you like could sleep F's, in. F's and everything else. So that okay. A's and S average out to like a C. Yeah. So so you did that. Did you finish the degree with the yeah, studies? Yeah, I wrote a yeah did a thesis the whole nine. And, so then, and how I, did you go from there to food? I was just an angry, still a pretty angry person. I just didn't find my place into what I wanted to do. I had a great time in college, mm-hmm. but I didn't know where that fit. I intern at Payne Weber, What's which is now Weber? UBS. Which is, uh, I did private wealth asset okay. management for rich people in Connecticut. As a religious studies major. Look, you're just all over the map. I love yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> and I wa- and I want, I've always wanted to go into cooking because my uh-huh. dad, when he immigrated, he was in the restaurant industry for almost 30 years. Okay. But there's a last thing. I almost dropped out of college because cooking to me, and again, I know this sounds like so... Um, hyperbolic almost uh, and, and, and uh, revisionist mm. but clearly to me then I was like I don't know if anything else has like meaning to me right? besides cooking besides I don't even know it was cooking were you good at it did no, you cook as a kid I'm not it's not cooking doesn't come naturally to me at that time I didn't know it's what I wanted how to do. old were you when this was happening uh, first when I tell my job I was 20 so it was 22 after I came back from Japan teaching English in Wakayama uh, Izumi Tatori for three months then I came back to New York, and I worked like three, four months, six months maybe, mm-hmm. in some financial job. That's when I knew. I was like, this is right before, right after the dot-com crash in 2000. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I just had a lot of thoughts running through my head, right? You? <laughs> so, thoughts running through your head? What? Uh, <laughs> you so yeah. off, most of them not good, right? <laughs> and I think this is right, right, right after or during September 11th. All right. And I'm just like, you know what? Life's short. I'm going to do something I'm not supposed to do. And then that's food. how cooking happened. And I felt that I could find honor and truth, for me at least, in, yeah. in trying to get better at something that is, like, repetitive huh. and a craft. Do you, you're not cooking at every restaurant. No. You're not cooking. Like, do you – what is the ratio of cooking to now as it was to, like, when, the, when you first started? Um, it used to be a lot. And then it tailors off and – for those that don't know, and I think even those that do know in the profession, this may not seem like the perfect analogy, but I live in a world of analogies. Each restaurant to me is like a child, even though I don't have any right now. Some, when you have a new restaurant, you are there all the time, and you're feeding it, you're nursing it, and every time they get a cold, you're worried, you know what I mean? Like, oh my God. And somehow, through magic it seems, they are off in college. Or they yeah. have their first job, and you don't even know how the hell that happened. Yeah. And then next thing you know, they're paying their own taxes, and they don't even need you. Yeah. And that's why I view some of the restaurants are like. And so some, some babies are easier than other babies. In and terms some of are rebellious teenagers, and you're like, I just want to kill you. Which was, which was your most <laughs> rebellious child? I love them all. <laughs> <laughs> which was your most rebellious child? They're there. Like, they're all, they're all different. They all have temperaments, and it's... What's the temperament of this one? Major Domo, month in. It's oh, a fussy man. baby. Does it sleep throughout the night? Is it, you know, attached to your hip? What is it? Like, what's its itch? It's overachieving. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tell me how. I think we've been very busy. We've been very lucky. And we have a very strong team. And this, the second month, to me, is the hardest part. Why? Because it, there's many points to get to that second, second month. 
but the current trajectory we're on, personally, having some experience with this, people, this is now when people want to like ease up. Because they work like, we work so hard mm -hmm. for three months before the first month. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, I want to take a break. Are you I taking a break, a break yet? Well, that's the thing is how do you do it where you don't, like okay. you got to find a way to keep the, yeah. you know, acceleration moving without burning everyone out. Are you in the kitchen every night? As much as I can right now, it's hard, right? We were supposed to open up months ago, but I'm here a lot. You must be tired. Um, really strange what's strange <laughs> everything's strange everything days. is strange yeah, why yeah. explain just work and life and work yeah. yeah just a lot going on but all good yeah strange but good yeah i mean it's busy i mean listen <laughs> i've been saying this to my shrink for almost 15 years every session it's just things are weird but <laughs> so when things feel weird like how do you work through it what is your go-to I, I meditate i don't meditate anymore because it's, stress, it's stressing me out. The meditation stressed you yeah, out. Yeah. Explain like, this to me, please. Not having time to meditate and to get yourself in a clear... Yeah. It was more stressful than... Because they weren't hitting your goals of the meditation. Yeah, I was like, you know what? Not for me. For right now. You All know right. what I mean? Like, so then what are you doing now to, to, to center yourself? Anti-meditation. <laughs> Just not being calm at all. <laughs> all right, all right. I mean, but I imagine, so this place has been open, what, a month? A little over a month So now, that, yeah. that's, that's just stressful. Like, the opening of a restaurant must be stressful. Yeah, it's up there. Does each opening get easier or harder? Easier in the sense that you have a team, and at least we have a group of people that can really excel at their jobs. Uh, harder because expectations. And yeah. I've never been a straight-A student. Uh, but now I know why people that I was always like, because I was like a C plus student, I was always like, hey, you got like a B plus A, like what the hell are you worried about? Yeah, you made it. But um, you don't want to let people down and, and like you got to be able to be hungry and, and, and still over deliver. And sometimes we do that and sometimes we don't and historically in the past. So um, are you OK with that? Are you OK with sometimes making it and sometimes not? No, I mean, I also think historically <laughs> in the past, most of the times we haven't. But. You know, one of the benefits to not, to, to the, I guess, the criticism that is not a play, movie, music, book, which is sort of set in stone, is this is like a living, breathing organism that can change and can grow, and sort of the future is unwritten in terms of where things lie, right? If you're given the freedom financially to still evolve. Yeah. So that's what's always exciting about a restaurant is you can start off like losing your first four games in a row and still find a way to make the playoffs. Make it work. Yeah. Can you talk about the biggest failure or the worst one? The worst one, one is still easily the first two restaurants. Sambar, to me, was like the, still the most brutal. Why? Um, because I thought it was going to work as a burrito bar, um, and we leveraged everything financially to make that happen, and it failed so fantastically mm. uh, in a weird way that failure was a massive blessing in disguise why um because it relieved all the pressure for the uh, next thing for, no because like i think a lot of people at the time when i was like what 28 wanted us to continue noodle bar and to grow and we opened a fast food shop for the most part so people just wrote it off not even as a sophomore jinx is like oh this guy is a one-hit wonder this group thank thank god good riddance Really? Yeah. That's how I interpreted it. And I don't think I was that wrong. Um, because you were doing a lot of stuff that was outside of, I guess, the elite food mainstream with that first restaurant, Yeah, but right? we were serving burritos in a Chipotle fashion that weren't 
that was really Korean and Chinese food yeah. that had a lot of analogies to, to uh, American Mexican burritos. Anyway, that failed, and I think I can look back on it somewhat fondly, but unequivocally it was like the worst, worst moments because if you lose it, you lose everything, right? Yeah. And my parents had leveraged a lot, so everything would have been gone. So, like, you never want to go through that. But I always liken that period to uh, having had a lot of cancer in my family uh. to chemotherapy, right? It's like Really? It's like the crappiest thing to do, but, but you have, you to have do no it. other option. So all of a sudden, it's not that it's chemotherapy. It's, it's the feeling you see when a cancer patient finally is like, oh, I got to live life now, right? So yeah. I'm going to put into consideration the things that I would normally not do because I just couldn't do it. Now I'm going to do it. And in some ways to me, that is almost tragically sad because it's like, mm. wait, like, wait, now you're going to be like, I'm going to live life. So for me, I always look at it somewhat romantically, but it's not. It made you really kind of made me realize like, life. wait a second, who cares? If we're going to go out of business, let's really go out of business. Did you really go out of business with that? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not only, then failure also becomes not an option, right? Yeah. And that was some ways like, it sounds cool, but it was the furthest thing from it, living through it. Yeah. And now it's like. You know, it's a, it's a nice thing to think about, but I don't want to do that again. Yeah. I hate the cliche, but I really don't regret the mistakes that have happened or the failures because oh. I don't. Okay. Like, I hate it. Yeah. But, like, it sucks if you leave it there. And I think that if okay. you make a failure and you don't learn from it, then it really sucks. Because I got a few failures in my life where I'm like, yeah, I still regret that one. I sure wish I hadn't done that thing. You but don't have, like, have, you, have you have you become a better person because uh, of those failures? Oh yeah, but could I have become that better person without that serious screw? But up? I think that regret is like what maybe is the catalyst for your for the yeah yeah right. Okay. I mean I, I just well, yeah. yeah that's yeah. What I, how I yeah. for me I can't yes. speak for yes. anyone else yeah right. I guess you know like my big question whenever I see a chef like yourself do so well, you come out the gate with a restaurant that is a game changer. At what point do you say, I'm happy with this success? So, like, you're asking for more work for yourself every yeah, time, I right? Mean, I, honestly, and again, I, I can understand if a, someone's listening to this, they're like, oh, this guy's full of <laughs> Like, I think I could have made more money and done things in the past that would have just serviced me. And mm-hmm. I think at the age of 40, I think I have some confidence in the ability to say where I derive genuine pleasure from, mm-hmm. which is tied into weird pleasure aspect, is like service. Or okay. like being able to provide for other people. Okay. Like that gives me intense happiness. Mm-hmm. And I think that's it, right? Like we have, I think Momofuku is a loaded concept now, to me at least. But number one, first and foremost, we employ a lot of people. And I know that we've changed lives, at least for my own employees and my team, like in a very, very positive fashion. Mm-hmm. And in order to provide, in order to change some of the inadequacies in the restaurant industry about how people are paid, number one, mm-hmm. how our purveyors and farmers are treated mm-hmm. and how they are like a living wage to people that I know have taken pay cuts from like, they could be making way more money elsewhere to if people want to really ha- have change in the business from uh, parental care, leave, you name it, like restaurants are going to have to make more money. And I think there's got to be a way for us to explore that. If we fail, we fail, but... So there's going to be more restaurants. Yeah, I think so. 
ok. That was David Chang, chef, also star of the new Netflix show Ugly Delicious. It's streaming now. I want you to watch it and email me and let me know what you think about that tuna pizza because for real, y'all, it left me shooketh. OK, we're back in your feeds Friday with our weekly wrap. And we'll have two very special guests this Friday, the hosts of Invisibilia, Elise Spiegel and Hannah Rosen. I used to sit next to them, and they're just delightful. Uh, stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.